Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a special edition featuring highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference held on May 18, 2019 in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in Midtown Manhattan. The conference panel, Fire Up Your Narrative, featured award-winning authors Ruth Franklin, John A. Farrell, Caroline Frazier, and Tom Reese. The discussion was moderated by BIO president and author Linda Level. Thank you all for coming. This is the panel on Fire Up Your Narrative. And um, I'm very pleased with our distinguished group of panelists today. You have their bios in your program, and so I won't go over each one of them individually except just to briefly introduce them. Um, To my far left is Ruth Franklin, um, author of a biography of Shirley Jackson. To her right is Jack Farrell. His most recent book is a biography of Richard Nixon. Um, He's written other biographies as well. Um, This is Tom Reese, who has also written numerous biographies. The most recent one is The Black Count um, about Alexander Dumas Sr. Is that fair to call him that, Um, maybe? (laughs) Grandfather. Grandfather, okay. And um, this is Carolyn Fraser, um, also like Ruth, a first-time biographer, and her biography is of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I am Linda Level. Um, I'm the moderator and biographer of Marianne Moore. I put together this panel of distinguished award winners because All of us, I think, whether we aspire to win awards or not, can learn from them because the same qualities that make for a book that gets the attention of um, book juries will also get the attention of an agent or a publisher or a reviewer or, of course, most importantly, readers. And so I hoped that we could all learn from their stories of success. I want to begin, all of you have received very positive reviews on your books in addition to your numerous awards, and I'd like to begin with what the reviewers and also readers said about your books that you find most gratifying. I know with my book, I, you know, there were, I mean, I loved, I got good reviews and I loved reading them all, but every once in a while there was a sentence or a reviewer that seemed particularly to get what it was I was going for. And so by, partially by way of introduction, I'd like for each of the panelists to address that. What was it that the readers and reviewers noted about your book that you found most gratifying? Uh, we'll start with Carolyn. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, I decided when I was starting Prairie Fires that I really had to do a historical biography Um, and that was a little bit of a stretch for me because 
uh, I was mainly familiar with literary biographies and had never uh, written a biography before. And so um, I realized this was going to be a, a challenge in certain ways and, um, and, and loved doing it. I loved, you know, discovering the, the history behind Wilder's life and, um, and writing about it, but always felt a little bit, you know, tentative in some ways. Like, am I, you know, really going to reach uh, the readers? You know, there are a lot of Wilder has a lot of uh, fans, <laughs> existing fans, who have a certain conception of her, and so I was concerned about um, kind of getting crosswise with them. Um, so I think the most gratifying thing to me ultimately was that when the book came out, um, people did respond uh, very strongly to the history. Um, some positively, not some not so, but everybody really engaged with it. And, and that was really gratifying to me and a real relief in a way because I, I felt like I was taking a, a, a little bit of a risk in some ways. And, and the review that, that kind of made that clear to me was the uh, review in the New York Times book review, which was by a historian, uh, Patricia Nelson Limerick. And uh, when I heard that she was reviewing the book, I was initially kind of uh, freaked out, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, what, what is going to happen with this? But, um, but she really did engage with it, and, and readers have as well. You know, when I've gone around to uh, various events, uh, people often come up to me and say, oh, you know, my family lost their farm in Texas during the Depression, or, you know, whatever version of that they have. So um, I, was, I was really gratified and, and pleased that I kind of brought people along on this journey. Tom? I also wrote a biography. I write biographies that have um, a lot to do with history, or I guess my, I choose biographical subjects, really, that can bring me back um, to moments, to historical moments that, in a way, will shock me out of my sort of cliched or kind of settled understanding of those moments. And I am most gratified, I guess, when critics or readers uh, also feel that that they've been sort of given a new perspective on something like World War II or the French Revolution that they thought they knew so well. And um, the other side of that is I love um, it when people say that I helped untangle something that was particularly sort of complex, another kind of historical moment thing where I think the French Revolution is often sort of bedeviling to people um, to kind of, it seems to be about so many things. They're the aftermath of World War I, um, and I love it when, I guess, reviewers especially, but, but readers, anyone, say that um, suddenly it became really clear to them, because in a way that's why I pursue biography. I started off with an interest in history, and I found that I could get to what I wanted about history best through pursuing these sort of individual lives. And um, I also play around a lot with footnotes, so I particularly love it when I tell, I like to tell miniature histories inside footnotes, um, miniature biographies in footnotes. And so I'm always worried that I'm 
digressing too much, and so I particularly love it when, uh, I guess one instance, I remember the, the uh, reviewer for the Los Angeles Times said he, he makes even the intricacies of, of white Russian emigre politics dazzling or something like that, <laughs> but um, it, it, it didn't, it wasn't so much that one review, it's like I love that when, when, when my readers get the almost, when they actually read the footnotes. Uh, and so, um, because I like to put all these alleyways um, uh, that I think uh, make you really appreciate the richness of, of, a, of a moment. And I, I guess um, the one thing I'd say, uh, I always like to bring up why I started writing and sort of, because I like to sort of tip my hat to the guy who, who taught me to do what I can do, which was my great uncle, um, who was sort of like my grand grandpa, was this great raconteur. He was this Viennese refugee guy who had been all over the world and had all these adventures. And he would tell them to you, uh, you know, he'd tell you the same story again and again and again. And each time it would have these different digressions and alleyways and byways. And somehow they were never boring. He never said too much, but they, it, it, it made you re-engage with that moment. And the stories he was telling were really about how he or his friends or family members were running away from the Nazis or escaped the Nazis or often didn't escape the Nazis. And so they, were, they could have been very dark stories. And one way that he made them things that he could talk about at the, over a dinner table or over a drink was that he would put in all these crazy little anecdotes, these little footnotes, and um, somehow his stories are what made me really get my particular kind of interest in history, to want to understand history from the point of view of individuals. And I suppose I always write about people who are in some way running away, um, who are living in dangerous times, and they're somehow uh, in some kind of jeopardy. And so I guess I love it when people appreciate uh, that aspect too. And, and that was a digressive answer, so I hope you appreciate <laughs> I love it if any of you appreciated the fact that I could digress and uh, hopefully not totally bore you. Okay, Jack? Well, uh, Richard Nixon is a very polarizing figure, and I probably the question I got more than any other going in before publication was what's your take? You know, are you going to? rake him over the coals one more time, or are you going to give him you know, the equivalent of the Fox News treatment and look at him from only that perspective? And the question always baffled me because I, didn't, I never identified a biographer's role as to go in with a take. And um, I sort of uh, have all these ghosts of city editors sitting on my, on my shoulder, which prevent me um, from doing that. And I sort of adopted a, um, a theory of uh, ruthless objectivity. And in going into Nixon, what I found was that there in the human being was a very uh, rich story. And the thing that was most gratifying to me was um, uh, that the reviewers seemed to, to, to get it right away. Um, and I was given pats on the back for um, being empathetic without excusing him and I think that was from the NPR review and that just you know I, that just lifted me up for for at least a, uh, a day and a half <laughs> the other thing that I, that I liked about the reviews was that for some reason a, a lot of the newspapers gave it to academics 
And as somebody who comes from the journalism background and is a popularizer um, on campuses, um, to get nice reviews from scholars was um, uh, very appreciative. And I think it sort of shows that this great divide between the, um, um, the cowmen and the farmers is not as, as big as, uh, as we might hope. And um, so that was also um, gratifying. And I uh, made a vow to become a scholar myself. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think it's fascinating how we have such different answers to this question, and we all kind of seem to have gone into our books hoping for trying to trying to engineer very different outcomes. And in my case, my project was really from the beginning um, kind of a, a literary reclamation of Shirley Jackson. Um, and I, you know, she's a unique figure in that, um, she, in, at least in this country, she's almost universally known for the lottery, which most of us, you know, were assigned to read in school for better or for ill at some point. Um, but that her other work was much less known. Um, and I, I really did explicitly kind of set out to correct the misconception of her as, um, on the one hand, kind of a, a one, you know, a one-hit wonder. Um, but also as a writer who is kind of pigeonholed as being a genre writer. Not that anything's wrong with that, um, but that it, it doesn't really describe the breadth of Jackson's contributions. Um, and so I set out you know, to correct that and also to try to explain how her reputation kind of dwindled over the years since her death. And a lot of that story had to do with her initial reception as a woman writer who was writing more or less exclusively about the problems that um, women faced in their interior lives, in their personal lives uh, during the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. Um, so I really, I went into my book um, kind of intending to do sort of a, a reconstruction of the mid-century literary canon that would make room for Jackson as an important figure within it. And it was really gratifying to me that so many readers did respond to the book on that level. And one of the most frequent comments I get from people who've read the book is that it sent them back to Jackson's work, either because there was a lot of it that they hadn't read in the first place or that they wanted to revisit it um, in, in light of the information I had given about her life or in, in the hope that they would see more in it than they had the first time around. So, you know, as a literary biographer on some level, I think that's really what we all want is, is to kind of to share the story with the subject. Okay, um, next I'd like to ask you about your revision process. Um, I'm now in the process of writing a rough draft, and as was indicated in the first panel this morning, um, getting started can be very difficult. Um, but once you have a first draft and you go in to revise, um, I'd like to ask each of you, what was it that you were focused on in the revision process? You've got your facts, you've got your basic um, bones of it. Um, many people have to cut. Um, many people reshape. So how did you reshape your biography and the revision process? And Ruth, we'll start with you this time. Interesting question. Um, so I was very lucky in that I didn't have to cut anything from my book, which I gather is very unusual. Um, my editor, um, who was Bob Weil at uh, Liveride Norton, gave me a great piece of advice fairly early on in the process. Um, I sent him about the first quarter or third of the rough draft of my book, um, 
hoping for, you know, basically like a pat on the back, like you're on the right track, keep going, everything is going fine. And I got back some very tough love uh, that's, <laughs> that said basically, this is a good first draft. Um, the implication meaning being you have a lot of work to do. And I was so disheartened by this that I actually put aside my manuscript for about six months, didn't do any more writing forward, just kind of went back to the research. Um, but the thing that he had focused on as the main problem with my rough draft, which I later came to realize that he was right about, was that um, there wasn't enough of my voice in the book. I hadn't yet gained the confidence to narrate Jackson's story as myself, as the author of the book. Um, and it was very heavily reliant instead on quotes, on paraphrase, on, you know, it was almost more of a collage of stuff from the archives rather than being my voice or, you know, my interpretation, my telling of the story. And, you know, while it was, it was no fun at the time, I think, you know, those, that period in which I did take a step back from the book and reimmersed myself in the research was kind of crucial in gaining the confidence to be able to tell that story. I mean, like, like everything else, I think, you know, each book is different and we have to learn how to write them as we go along. At least that's how the process has been for me. So it wasn't so much of revising, necessarily revising what had gone before, but that each chapter as I went on and learned more about the process of writing a biography to begin with, each chapter then became stronger than the one that had come before it. Jack? Yeah, coming from a journalistic background, um, my writing in the first two books tended to be flat. And the one thing that I wanted to do with Nixon, and I knew I had to do with Nixon because flat just wasn't gonna work with this kind of uh, personality, was to figure out, to learn as a writer how to analyze, how to interpret, when to put in uh, a little bit, when to bleed a little bit more onto the page um, than I was used to doing, and also, not to bleed cliches into the page, you know, to, to do it the right way. Um, so my second draft of Nixon was, I sent it out to a lot of different people, um, all Nixon experts, took everything that they gave me, which was encouraging, um, but told them specifically, um, look for really clumsy cliches and just stop me before I, before I sin. And they were really good at that. Um, and then occasionally, you know, one of them would say, you know, is this the best you can do with the checker speech? I mean, this is a major turning point in, in his career. Give me a little bit more. Put me in that studio a little bit more. Let's, let's feel the emotion. Let's uh, swell, uh, smell the, um, the flop sweat. Let's uh, really be in that theater. Um, and that was really helpful as well. So as I go in towards the next book, what I'm hoping to do is um, not have to leave it so much for the revision as to do it uh, right the first time. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Well, those were, I, I definitely felt a few commonalities with both those answers. I definitely hope uh, to get it right on my first draft in this current book, and uh, I, that's my goal, and I am, uh, I will say I do, f in my experience, I, it, it definitely becomes easier, um, and um, I suppose, I mean, I'm sort of, one thing that 
guides all my revisions is, is something I, I, I should have brought up with as, a, as an answer to the, to the last question, which is the highest praise for me from readers of my book is when, it's usually not reviewers who will admit this, but when readers tell me, you know, I really kind of hate history, but somebody gave me this book and I can't believe it. I, I, I thought that was, you know, it wasn't boring. You know, it was really interesting. And, and um, in a way, I'm always shooting for my eye, kind of the ideal reader I have when I'm revising is the reader I think really doesn't, is not into history and maybe not even into biography. So I'm going for um, an effect that can reach people outside of this building, for example. Um, and I feel like if I can, um, it's never, I never want to dumb anything down, of course, but if I can make it interesting to those readers, then people who do like history, of course, um, will be easier. And I, and I guess uh, I'm one of these people who, I will never actually write uh, a draft that is anything close to what comes out. I'll just, rather than say process, I'll give one anecdote. When I, The Black Count, my last book, um, I handed it in to the publisher and um, I always, um, the op maybe I don't have as good an editor as Bob Weil, um, <laughs> all my editors usually, you know, they love whatever I, I mean, I was handing something in because I, revise massively before I hand anything in. I'm very secretive about my work. I never show it to anybody, but I kind of go over it a thousand times. I give it to the editors. They're always like, oh, yeah, this is great. And then they tell me about the things that they like it. And then I'm like, oh, gosh, this is a disaster. Because clearly we've got a kind of, um, I'm very mistrustful of this relationship because they like me and they want to, you know, we have a, uh, they want to validate the fact that they pick me as their writer. I mean, I have all these ideas in my head. They're not a good reader for this. I've got to go find some guy on the corner who, who just never reads books. Um, and um, I, I have a couple people like that, and those are my readers, and I will never <laughs> reveal who they are. Um, but uh, so I handed in the final draft of The Black Count. This is many years into it, and um, they... Um, they were like, okay, this is great. Everybody at Publisher read it, and it was going into copy edit, and I had a uh, epiphany, and I'm really surprised that they uh, didn't pull my contract because I said, okay, sorry, I, I, I need to do a few minor revisions, and I took the manuscript back, and I rewrote the entire book um, over the following eight weeks, and during this time, I was getting all these you know, frantic emails and calls from you know, my, not the editor, publisher, but also my agent saying, you know, what are you doing? You're, this is like, they're really seriously, you could lose this contract. And I just have a faith that, you know, um, no, I won't because I know it will revision. I guess I just have this massive, I don't believe that you can over sort of revise. So it's never something I worry about. And, um, you know, um, they did publish the book and sometime uh, if I, I'd love to show people the draft they were going to publish, which would have been really boring. And um, um, again, it, it's, it came down to what Ruth did. It was like, I didn't have enough of my voice in it. And I think that's something in revising. It's always, it's a, to me, it's about telling a story. And like a novelist, the voice is, you know, it's more important than any of the facts. You can't get any facts wrong, obviously, but you can 
you can put in facts or not put them in, and you can, you know, you can cut out half of Richard Nixon's life, as far as I'm concerned. It, what, what I love about um, um, your book is actually the voice, and it made me interested in Nixon from the, the way you were telling the story from the beginning. So um, anyway, that's um, so when I uh, turned my first draft in to my editor, who was Sarah Bushtel at, at Metropolitan Books, she called me up, you know, a little bit later and said, well, I've got good news and bad news. <laughs> and uh, she said, I think, I think the middle is just fine. But you've got real problems at the beginning and real problems at the end, so we're going to have to work on that. And and so that was a, a product of you know that led to many many revisions of the of the opening and the ending, um, in which she and and her uh, uh, the other editor on the book Gregory Topas uh, were were really immensely helpful. Um, and you know one of the sort of real issues at the beginning of my book was that um, it kind of begins five years before Laura Ingalls is born, and, and then she gets born a couple of times in the, in the course of the opening um, sections of the book. And, and I was actually really amazed to see your black count because it has two prefaces yeah, at it the does. beginning. Yeah, yeah. It and so I was twice. like, oh. Yeah validated. <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, my, my book does have a kind of introduction and then another uh, kind of prefatory uh, thing. And um, so that was a lot of cutting and, and a lot of uh, rethinking of, of certain issues. And um, one of the things they were really disturbed about was the number of names in the, you know, initial first chapter of the book that, you know, we don't need to know all the names of, of uh, Laura Ingalls' mothers, sisters, and brothers, and, you know. And, and so it was a real kind of pulling back from the level of detail that I had thought was necessary um, and, and I really resisted that because I'm sort of a completist and always want to do everything and but the kitchen sink. And, and, uh, but then they sent me a draft back in which they had taken out a lot of the stuff that was, seemed extraneous to them. And it read so much better than what I had had that um, it was really clear that uh, that we needed to, to minimalize a lot of uh, that detail. And so, you know, I was, I was the uh, uh, benefactor of a lot of, of great editorial advice. Um, and uh, one thing that I have found, particularly with this book, but I, I think um, for me it really makes a huge difference to print the thing out, and much as I hate to do that, and, and it's a waste of paper, and, you know, I, I takes forever if it's 500 pages, you know, but it makes such a huge difference to read it on the page rather than reading it on the screen. You start noticing repetitions and cliches and things that, you know, you just weren't catching before, um, and so it seems like such a kind of a dumb thing, but I think it's just 
abs for me anyway. It's just absolutely necessary. I do that as well. In fact, when I do print it out, I print it out with the margins so that it looks as much like a book page as possible <laughs> so that I'm experiencing as much as I can what the galleries are going to look like. And I'm as wasteful as possible. I print it as many times as I can <laughs> in every different format. I completely second that. And I want to add, I also uh, read, I create an audio book of every version of my book because I want to know how it sounds as well as how it is on the page. I think that all these things, as many different formats, if we can put it into comic book form, we should do that. Anything we can do to see it from a different angle um, to do all that stuff. So I have to ask you one quick question. Did you revise the middle? Um, well, I mean, after Sarah said that, she then immediately kind of reneged. <laughs> I mean, not totally. I mean, we didn't do a you know big rethink of of the middle, but um, of course, as they were editing, you know, line editing, they came up with ten thousand questions about you know how, this doesn't make sense, and you know why. I mean, one thing they didn't understand was kind of the weather, you know, that I was, I, there's all this ecological history in the book, and, you know, I was describing how, um, you know, storms can be really localized, but I didn't have a very good description of it, so they didn't understand that, because I think here on the East Coast, that's not a thing, it's a thing in the West. Um, so there were many things like that that they really helped you know, by asking the questions that they did uh, helped me improve it. Great. We'll applaud them one more time. Thank you. <laughs> you just heard highlights from a panel discussion during BIO's 2019 conference featuring authors Ruth Franklin, John A. Farrell, Caroline Frazier, and Tom Reese. BIO's conference was held on May 18, 2019, in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. We'll feature more highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference next week. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>